Hello everyone, you're listening to Sightless Fun, a podcast about board game accessibility for people who are blind and visually impaired. I am your host, Ertai Shashko, and joining me today is a dear friend from Canada, Ryan Peach. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thank you for having me. So Ryan Peach is a board game enthusiast, and today we're going to talk about sight loss and the hobby of board games. So Ryan, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? I live in uh, the province of Nova Scotia in Canada. My, I'm in my late 30s. I used to work as a um, computer service repair technician up until a number of years ago, and sort of the confluence of further vision loss and uh, lack of opportunity to continue in the field led me to retire from that field at that time. I enjoy playing board games. I'm interested in science fiction, uh, television shows, Lego. I'm a self-professed uh, junkie of audiobooks. I probably listened to way too many of them, but uh, what can you do? I have a common condition, the retinitis pigmentosa. I had, with corrections, better than 8% vision for most of my life. And then somewhere between, I'd say, 2009 and 2011, um, things started to go noticeably downhill with the development of some cataracts in the center of my eyes. Uh, it was around that time that I was winding up in my career working as a technician. And then, despite having those cataracts removed in 2011... Um, I ended up losing the rest of my vision, I'd say somewhere between then, about 2013-ish. And so, during my period of picking up board games and becoming an enthusiast, I sort of transitioned from having enough vision to keep up with a lot of things to having none up to the present. Hmm, I see. So, the sight loss hasn't prevented you from enjoying board games. Did you have any other hobbies? Before that, you can't do anymore because of your vision loss? Billiards and curling. I did a fair bit of that. Um, uh, I probably did billiards for, for longer, going back to, oh, eight or nine. You have to be tall enough to be able to see over the table to shoot the cue. <laughs> so it started about, about as far back as that. I think in both cases, it's, it's the geometry that, uh, that I like. And the strategy about where things are going to go and where you want them to go next. So those are two sports. I do know that there are um, teams of mixed sight uh, curlers out there that will compete in national and international events. But as I as as it's been explained to me, I would not be able to play the game the way I was able to play it. It would not be the same for me. So. I have not pursued it uh, post-vision loss. So there's, those are definitely two hobbies that uh, I can no longer enjoy. Lego is not impossible, but it's certainly a lot more difficult if you want to follow along with the instructions as they're entirely graphical. And I've yet to find anywhere online where someone has created either a video series or a blog or anything where the instructions are explained or typed out in order for someone with a sight loss to be able to find the pieces and follow along. Also, too, I'm making things myself. Um, I don't know what the colors of anything are, and uh, they're all a bunch of colors. I tried creating a few things a while back. I was quite proud of the shapes, 
But I did have someone tell me that while they thought they were good, it looked like a box of crayons had thrown up on it. <laughs> yeah, I, I also was uh, collecting uh, Lego shortly after I was diagnosed uh, with RP myself. And in the beginning, it was pretty fun. And as my site deteriorated, it started getting more and more frustrating, like having to ask my brother or anyone else in the room for the colors of the pieces and mixing the colors that are printed on the actual instructions. So yeah, I had to had to drop that because I just couldn't take it anymore. It was just too frustrating in the end. Okay, so why don't you tell us a bit about board games? When did you first start? Do you remember the game that got you hooked? Well, let's get past all the boring stuff about growing up playing Monopoly and Clue and things like that and get to the interesting part where I would say I kind of became primed on what we consider to be the modern hobby. This would have been, oh, 95, 96. I was living at CFB Shiloh. It's an uh, army base located in Manitoba, another province of Canada, quite a, a long distance away. Canada is a big country for for those people who aren't from here or uh, have never visited. So, uh, spending some of my misspent teenage youth there, I fell in with a bunch of, a couple of mis- miscreants uh, that were into the same sort of things I was, uh, playing uh, console video games, uh, board games, into science fiction and fantasy, that sort of stuff. And so, I was first introduced through them, to a game called Magic the Gathering, which is pretty much famous. Um, and some would say the start of the modern hobbies, others wouldn't. Um, from there, within that group, we also played the Hero Quest board game, uh, which involved 3D miniatures and props placed in various locations in a board that would change from scenario to scenario. So you'd use tokens to block off hallways and create uh, uh, walls and stuff. So that way, even though the board looks the same, it has the, it is, is a static board. You make new uh, dungeon levels and stuff based on where doors are located and walls are blocked off and other props and stuff are. And, and so it's a group of heroes against one player uh, moving around, monsters opening and closing doors, setting up traps and things like that. It's a uh, uh, it's a classic game a lot of people remember fondly from their childhood. So yes, those were good times, and we spent a lot, and I mean a lot of time, playing Magic the Gathering. That was our primary game. I did not do much in the way of what you call hobby gaming um, until 2007. I ended up back in uh, in touch with one of my high school friends, the one who started me out with Magic the Gathering and those other uh, specialist games, and I'm introduced to a board game called Descent, Journeys in the Dark. And it's kind of like what HeroQuest would be when it's all, when it would, when it would eventually grow up. So, more, um, miniatures on a, on a dungeon scape with one player trying to kill you and you trying to survive against various monsters and traps and things. And from that, um, I guess I sort of stepped through the doorway into 
uh, what we would consider to be the modern hobby today, from that to Catan, to Pandemic, and uh, and onward from there. And it's been a great adventure uh, ever since, all the way up to the present. That's awesome. And right now, what do you think your current favorite game is? That is a hard one. Um because I, I could use different criteria to determine what I would consider to be the favorites. There are games that have, that are crowd pleasers that other people are a lot more excited to play than I am. So from that list, I could, could, could give you a favorite or, or a few that are top of list. For myself, I would say I, I have a few. There's, there's no one game that I would always play all the time, no matter what, but right up near the top of the list, I have Among the Stars, which is designed by a, a design team from Italy, I think, and published by Artipia Games and Stronghold Games in the States. It is a game about players surviving a galactic catastrophe and in this period of peace, sort of picking up the pieces and each creating their own space station. These space stations are built up with different kinds of facilities, locations, and those locations are drafted, so selected one at a time from a hand of cards, and then played as locations into your station. Once you've selected your card and done your thing, you pass your hand over to the next player in order, you get the hand from the other player, and this cycles around until the hands are empty and a new round begins. You play four rounds, and the player with the most points wins. And it's a game I know well enough that I can teach to pretty much anyone. Uh, there's Because there's so many cards in the game now, uh, where I have all of the expansions for it, there's so much replay value. I have yet to exhaust all the possibilities with this game. I don't win every time. Um, I'd say I've had a lot of games where it's been close. And I'm very satisfied with that. It, it feels like a good experience. The time just evaporates. And it's a game I can recommend um, on a number of levels for accessibility. And it just so happens to still be in print, so that doesn't hurt either. After that, um, I would mention a game called Defenders of the Realm. Now, this comes in a really big box. It's designed by Richard Lanius and published by Eagle Griffin Games. And for those people who have a passing familiarity with the Pandemic board game or any of its flavors and variations... It has a very similar core system to the way it's played. You as a group of heroes are trying to defeat four different colored generals that start out at each of the four corners of the board, keep them from getting to the center of the board, and by defeating all four of them, that's how you win the game. But there are many ways to lose, as there is in Pandemic, as you may, may know. But the way the game plays out is very similar. So a person can um, sort of graduate from the pandemic experience to it. For me, I played so many games, uh, pandemic, um, and with the expansion from, I'd say, 2000 and, I want to say 2008 to 2011. We, there were some, some uh, game nights I'd have with my buddies where we play two or three times. Because we could finish a game in about 45 minutes. And the game is already there, so the setup would be faster. So where Pandemic kind of became played out for me, um, that's where I felt like um, 
Defenders of the Realm was sort of the the next step up for me. I could get that experience in something with a little more meat, a little more depth, with a theme I like. I could mention other games that that I personally put in in the top category of games, like I said, that I feel um, I can teach. That's kind of a, a very important criteria for me. If I know this game well enough that I can teach it to other people, then I feel more comfortable uh, bringing it out. And I think other people feel more comfortable in in playing it with me, where we're not just reading it out of the rule book. That's a common difficulty with people like us that have visual impairments. I've experienced teaching problems myself, and usually it takes more time for me to learn a game and then teach it. So, yeah, we probably should dedicate a full episode both to learning a game and teaching. Uh, how often would you say that you play nowadays? I'll say I would like to play at least as often as once a week. And there was a time where I was doing that almost twice a week when I lived out in Alberta. Here, I probably play games on average once every three weeks. The only thing that is somewhat regular are the open game events that um, one of our communities have here on the second and fourth Wednesday of each month. And so I try to travel out to attend those. And for you, what would you say is the best part about board games? Like, is it the social interaction? Is it the brainy part in strategy games? I haven't played different games for different reasons. So for some games, it really is just about the the sitting back, drinking a few drinks, and drawing some cards, chucking some dice, and just sort of having sort of a social experience with people you like to hang out with. There's not a whole lot of strategic depth going on, but there's there's some competitiveness and some challenge, and, uh, and then the game is over. Um, something like Port Royal, which is a pure card game where you're drawing cards off a deck and um, pressing your luck to see if you can eventually uh, win with 14 victory points. Uh, based on cards you have in front of you. It's a game that probably takes about an hour with up to, I think it's five people. And it's a, it's a good time where you can just sort of think, not think too hard and, and hang out and chat and do whatever. But other times, I definitely like to get into a game where I'm exploring the space of possibilities, all the different options um, of what you can do in your turn, um, what is available to choose from, and when I step away from some of those games, I've, I, I may be thinking about them after the game is over. Um, Among the Stars is one of those sorts of games where I'm like, I haven't done everything I want to do in this game. I see some of the things that can be done. I want to keep exploring. This game hasn't become played out for me. All of the possibilities haven't been exhausted. And so sometimes I enjoy doing that. Uh, I'm playing games for that reason. Uh, some games are too much of that, and then there are some games that are not enough of that when I want more. So, like I say, I different games for different moods. My my personal project is to have a, mo- a modestly sized collection that covers a wide variety of themes and interactions, experiences, and stuff, so that I can cover a wide variety of possibilities for when it comes to the time to actually get together with people and play some games. 
But definitely the social interaction is a part of all of that. If I'm the only one having fun, I'm not going to have fun for very long. So if other people are having fun too, that's great. And those games that people find the most enjoyable from the ones I have are the ones that are most likely going to get played over others that people find interesting, but not necessarily fun. Mm, yeah. And uh, usually, I mean, at least that's for me, even if there are some games that I really like, I try to buy games that I know my group will like, because if I get a game that other people don't like, eventually I won't be able to play that at all. So, yeah, I see I see what you mean with that. Let's talk a little bit about accessibility. I have mentioned earlier that I still have some sight left, even though for most games I play them blind because I can't simply read the text on the cards or see the icons properly. So I do various mods to my game. Uh, first, let me ask you, can you read Braille? I cannot. My vision was sufficient through grade school that it wasn't a requirement that I learn it. I used large print and magnification where possible. So I'm I'm quite literate and, and fluent with reading English print. But being blind now, uh, or, or having fully lost the rest of my vision, I can't read that anymore, and so have not yet developed the ability to learn, to, to read Braille. And I don't know um, if or when I will, as I continue to find ways to get around needing to use it. So, as your sight deteriorated and you went through what I'm going through now, uh, you probably did some adaptations to games and mods. Could you tell me a little bit about what challenges you had over the years? Back when I picked back up into hobby gaming, so 2007, 2008, I was playing games like Descent uh, fairly capably. I could still see the grid lines on the room and hall tiles that would be locked together to be able to see where I could move my miniatures around to. And that's the, and that's a big part of that is where do you move things? Where do, where does the overlord opponent move things? Um, some have, have called something like Descent, Journeys in the Dark, a sort of uh, tactical mini skirmish game because it has a lot of the same sort of aspects, though rather than being on an open field vis-a-vis uh, -vis your table um, or a board with uh, terrain, this is a little bit more constrained. So in time, it became harder and harder to figure out visually where I could move miniatures around in such games because the grid lines would be harder to see um, determining one miniature from another would become harder to see. So, in time, I had to um, consider more and more of those games, especially the ones, those miniature skirmish games that involve uh, measured movement using measurement rulers and such, um, would, would be, I would consider those to be difficult to impossible, and so I sort of struck them out of my consideration. For those games where it's only a part of the overall, one of the workarounds I found for that would be to ask certain questions. So I know what my abilities are, and so I'd ask, okay, I want to do this, 
is there anything I can reach within my movement ability? If I walk, if I run, if I have to spend um, effort in this game, it's called fatigue, to move a few more steps. Can I, can I get to something? Should I be the one to get to it? And so between myself and the other hero players, we would figure out what we would want to do, and then someone else would move my piece for me. And I could see the overall shape of, of where things were and where we were going as a group, but not necessarily determine which which unit would be mine exactly. And so I'd have to keep a lot of things in my head. And so that's where I started out with trying to figure out what, from game to game what things I would need to know and how what questions to ask. Uh, a lot of this with regards to gaining sighted assistance to help me play these games is figuring out what you need to know and how to ask the right questions so that you're not spending any more time than you have to on your turn deciding on what you want to do and what you, you feel is important to know in order to make to have agency in the decisions you want to make. So that's that's some of it. Right. But like I say, over time, uh, some games just... I had either have to stop playing them or consider them to be unplayable from the outset and not, not participate in them. Were there any of those games favorites of yours that you had to stop because simply they became inaccessible after you lost your vision? Battlestar Galactica is one of them. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the game has so many cards, so many decks of cards, and because one of the players in your group is a hidden traitor, maybe more than one, you can't play open-handed. Um, with some of the expansion content, you you may end up with treachery cards in your hand as well, which are bad cards that do bad things. And so you don't want to be seen pitching those cards into um, a crisis where you're trying to meet a challenge. Because once people see what that you're doing something like that they're you're the accusations are going to fly and even if you're just doing it to get rid of those cards <laughs> because you're easily because you think the challenge is easy and there'll be more than enough numbers if you fail people are going to be suspicious and that suspicion may carry all the way through the game so it would hurt the blind player trying to play in a game like that where they're they're either not in a, it doesn't give them any advantage to play open-handed. If nothing, it's a disadvantage. And if everyone plays open-handed, it's a disadvantage for everyone. And if you're trying to be the Cylon, the enemy player, and fake out the players, then you, again, you're at a disadvantage. So there are certain ways the game has to be played. And an inability to read Braille, for one, makes it impossible for me to just put Braille on those cards to make it accessible. And, where the text on the cards uses a thematic font that resembles the font that the actual TV show uses and uh, the box lid uses. So it's sort of an angly type of font. When you try to use a reading app on your phone to read that text, it's garbage. It's it's something something comma 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 oh. something something like it's it's just gibbledy nonsense that it can't do anything with yeah so so and the long and the short is that with the game having so many cards despite the other elements being um doable it it just becomes somewhat prohibitive for me at least to make a game like that accessible 
Is there any modification that you've done to a game that you're in particular proud of? I'll admit, as far as adaptations are concerned, they're, I'm only really getting started. The, there are more that I intend to make, but for now, um, the two things that I've done to make my games more playable are to replace resources in those games that use resources with ones that are distinctively shaped. So you get a lot of games where the resources are represented by wooden cubes. They're all the same shape and size, yeah, but they're different colors. And yes, while you can just make sure that the red, blue, and yellow cubes are always in the same order in the same place in front of you, if you happen to do something to knock them around, or as you're trading one for two more of this other color, things get a little mixed up, then you need to get some help unmixing them. And, well, there are other there, there are other things I could be using in place of these as resources so that I don't have to go through any of that. And I can easily select my own resources from uh, whatever bin that I have them in sorted into. So some of my games, I've done that. Um, with the cubes or the discs where they're all the same. But the thing I think I'm the most proud of are the foam core box inserts that I make. So it might not seem like an accessibility adaptation thing, but my philosophy on this is that when you can sort and organize your games in an, an effective way where you're not digging around in the bottom of the box for this baggie or that baggie of components, that helps to smooth the way into and out of uh, games. So if there's anyone who might be hesitant about sitting down to a game for the first time with someone like myself who can't see and needs some sighted assistance, anything I can do to help smooth the way into the gameplay, such as making the setup and teardown faster, or making it easier to find things in the, in the box for gameplay and stuff, I'm more than happy to do that. So some of my organization uses these plastic locking storage containers that have um, uh, dividers inside them, so you can make the internal uh, spaces, whatever width you need them to be for sorting components and stuff. But there are a lot of games where I just haven't found a solution that I consider to be adequate or appropriate. And so I say, well, you know, I've got the time and the tools to do my own and make it exactly the way I need it to be to fit components the way I want them to be so that they can be sorted the right way. So in some cases you can play the game with uh, your resources and stuff right out of the box without having to pull open baggies and spread stuff around the table, that sort of thing. So I, I started making these, oh, in about 2012, eh, a few at a time just for myself from scratch using foam board or foam core, which is like a dense foam sandwiched between two layers of what some people would call Bristol board or poster board. Right. Um, and then using my templates and tools, cutting out the, the shapes that I need, and then fitting them together using double-sided tape and cut-down toothpicks. So no glue. Most other inserts that people assemble uh, usually involve glue at some stage to hold the pieces together. And now there are a lot of places you can find online where you can download a two-dimensional template printed out on a sheet of paper. 
slap it onto the top of your foam board and just cut along the dotted lines to get your your panels and stuff, and then and use the instructions to show how it should go together. Unfortunately, I cannot do that with these these box insert projects. They're all made at the time from scratch, and I have no way to create some sort of easy-to-follow template for others to download and follow from the internet. So they're all one-of-a-kind pieces. And each each time I tend to learn something new and get a little bit better at making them. Do you have any pictures or have you recorded any videos uh, to share like how they look or how you have been building them? I've been asked for this by others and I do intend to provide some photos eventually. I'm probably not the person who should be holding the camera while taking the pictures or doing the photos. Yeah. Uh, because you might not get the whole thing in there. <laughs> so it's a two-person job. And so that involves needing someone who has the time to help me take the pictures I need to take in good lighting. So I think most of what I'll, I'll provide, at least in the, sh uh, in the immediate, will, will probably be pictures of the finished product. And at some point later, I hope to be able to do either a video or a series of pictures showing the process of building one of these inserts. Right. So you said that it's been about 10 to 11 years since you got into the modern board games. And since then, have you seen uh, or, well, noticed improvements accessibility-wise uh, as the years have passed? I would say that the availability of PDF versions of the rule books is definitely a big step uh, in the right direction towards accessibility. Um, because for a long time, I wasn't the one responsible for learning and teaching the games. I didn't necessarily go looking for a PDF copy of the rule book myself. It was only later when I moved away from my Alberta group and I started getting into teaching games to other people myself that I had to go out and look for an alternative to the physical rule book. Um, and unfortunately also have to relearn a lot of games that I knew well because there were a lot of things I wasn't taught by those who learned and taught the games, even my own games, because they managed things in the game that they either felt I didn't need to know about or were managing and didn't feel I need to know about. So the PDF rulebooks have definitely been a big help that way, but they're not all made equal. Some books are, are more parsable than others, and I have encountered one or two where there is nothing, no text at all to navigate. It's like it's a, a document full of images or just a blank document. As far as other things go, I can't think of anything specific that I would say is an overall trend towards a greater accessibility. There are certainly some uh, games or games that come from certain places where unintentionally they seem to be doing a better job with accessibility. As an example, if you go to the crowdfunding service Kickstarter and you look at a lot of those games that include resources and stuff, uh, they often either start out with or upgrade to customized resources that have their own distinctive shapes. And so as something that attracts me to consider pledging to back for a game on Kickstarter, 
I will look at those where either they have or will have, could have, um, custom game bits where I can identify them by myself without having to replace them on my own after the fact. Also, as an unintentional um, accessibility uh, feature, you'll find a lot of places selling aftermarket uh, sets or groups of resource replacements that are of custom shapes and stuff to replace those uh, those boring old wooden cubes and meeples for in your games. Let's say if a publisher came up to you and asked you to improve the accessibility. So for instance, you could choose between having a fully accessible rulebook that can be read by the screen reader, or they could fix the size and shape of the resources. Would you prefer one over the other? There are three things that I would like to see as a standard from most or all publishers that create games with a reasonable consideration for accessibility. The first is make sure that you have a PDF version of the rulebook that can be parsed with a screen reader somehow. The second is stop using wooden cubes and discs. Just stop using them. There's, there's no excuse anymore. No, even if it's just woodcut resource shapes, they can't be that much more expensive than a cube. We're talking about pennies here. Stop doing it. And the third is for those player boards where you're going to be placing uh, cubes or meeples or tokens or dice or whatever onto them and their placement is important, your player boards should have a punch out, an indent, recess, whatever you want to call it, in that board for that piece to rest into so that it won't get jostled during gameplay. More and more games inside of and out of Kick outside of Kickstarter are proving that these sorts of boards can be produced. So I'm hoping to see any and all of these eventually become a standard trend alongside with pushing for um, better color contrast and stuff on player components and, and such things like that. But those three things, absolutely, I would like to see become more uh, of a, a standard if 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 not like a formal standard yeah for the last one that you mentioned i could compare for instance the player boards in dice forge versus the player boards in king of tokyo or king of new york uh so in king of tokyo and new york uh the player boards are used they are those circular dials that are used to track the health and victory points while what Diceforge does, Diceforge uses the player boards to track resources. Uh, it's uh, the board has cutouts for like for the cubes, so there are multiple tracks that track uh, your gold, your sun shards, your moon shards, and your victory points. And just having those cutouts versus something like the dials or just a flat board to put your tracker on is so much better i mean uh i was really really happy when i saw how the player bo boards were made because now i could track my own resources without having to rely on external fixes or just someone else modify my dial now there's a lot of progress being done with research on treating rp retinitis pigmentosa 
And there's all kinds of different things like stem cell research, uh, genetic modification using CRISPR. There's bionic eyes. So maybe one day we'll become cyborgs. As cool as it would be to participate in the um, steampunk future we're all hurtling towards, I'm actually personally a fan of, of any approach that involves using the body to either repair or um, replace the uh, damaged retinas with something functional. So what I was going to ask you is, if in a few years you got your vision back, is there a game that you would immediately get to the table that you couldn't play before? If it's a board game and I haven't already adapted it by then, it would be Twilight Imperium 4th Edition. If it's just a table game, it would be Billiards. Um, if we're talking about um, video games, it would probably be something from the Heroes of Might and Magic series, or even something from the old Super Nintendo days, uh, of which I have fond memories of from my youth. Awesome. So, with this podcast... One of my goals is to introduce board games to other visually impaired folks. For someone who is interested in the hobby, do you have any advice you'd like to give? I would say that if you are a Braille user, for those people, um, you will have access to a good tool that will not solve all of your accessibility problems, but may help you get a lot closer to playing these games, either with you brilling those games yourself with the help of uh, a reader or by finding services that make kits that will apply braille to uh, a game you might be interested in playing to uh, get you started into the hobby and exploring some of what it has to offer. For those who do not or are willing to take advantage of options outside of the pure use of braille, don't be afraid to ask for sighted assistance. I've found that in a number of situations, even with people I don't know, I've often found at least one person willing and patient enough to be with me, to help me, to make, help me do the things I need to do to make my own choices uh, in a game. I feel that, that player agency is absolutely important. You do not want others to make your choices, but there's no shame in allowing others to help you to learn the things you need to know, to answer the questions you need to ask, to help you put things where they need to be put in order for you to select from the choices you know to make and play the game the best way you can, like everyone else. Even though sighted people miss things, make mistakes, don't make the best choices. How about the sighted players? Do you have any advice for them when they're playing with someone who is blind? We already covered some suggestions about this in our third episode. I would say make sure that the blind player knows everything about the game. Where, th where things are on the player boards, what the tokens are. Give them to them so that they can see the shapes. They may not manage these things on the board themselves, but if such a player plays a game enough to a point where they feel they know it well enough to teach, then they have the ability to explain these things to other people when they are trying to introduce this game to a new group, even if those other people won't be managing those things for them. And that's, that's something I missed out on 
um, for a lot of years where I was not the one doing the learning and teaching of the games. Also, too, do not make choices for the blind player, but also don't assume that the blind player knows everything about what's going on or or which questions to ask. It can be an exploration of figuring out how to um, help that blind player or, or partially sighted player learn about the things that they, they can learn about in the game towards being able to ask smart questions and making better, maybe more strategically optimal choices if that game is, is one with uh, a need for strategic play, that sort of thing. A lot of what I know now about how to play certain games, I had to learn by thinking critically about what it is I thought I would need to know and how I would go about asking those questions. Some games are involve asking a lot more questions um, in order to be able to make choices than, than others by simply just being able to remember where things are or being able to touch where things are to, uh, to know what you can do. So some of our listeners might want to contact you and ask you for advice or have any questions. Do you have a Twitter handle or an email that would, you would like to share with us? And I'll post this in the show notes. I'm primarily on Twitter and I can be reached at Red Meeple Ryan, R-E-D-M-E-E-P-L-E-R-Y-A-N. Um, I can also be reached by email at redmeepleryan at gmail.com, but you're far more likely to get me on Twitter most of the time. Before we wrap up here, do you have anything else you'd like to add? I think that tabletop gaming is great. There are more games than anyone could ever play. So if you think that games, are, that there isn't something out there for you, there probably is. Uh, don't be afraid to look online, um, ask questions, see what there is to see out there, because there's there's so much, there's there's almost too much out there to explore, and um, I think it's a great way to be social. Give it a try. Ran, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for joining the show. Happy to be here, and I hope I could help either answer some questions or uh, encourage some new questions to be asked. Thank you for having me. If you have any questions for me, on the other hand, you can contact me on Twitter at SightlessFun, or you can also email via SightlessFun at Outlook.com. You can also check out our website at www.sightless.fun. Thank you very much for listening. And I hope Ryan has shown you that you can still have fun while being sightless. This episode was hosted by Ertai Shashko and edited by Alpai Shashko. We'd also like to extend our special thanks to Fighting Windmills, for allowing us to use their music in our podcast. You can find them at fightingwindmillsmk.bandcamp.com.